1: I'm so excited to talk to
0: you. I know, me too.
2: It's interesting. You've got lots of cool stuff to discuss. So do you. Well, we're very interesting people, apparently.
1: I know. (laughs) I want to talk about fighting and you want to talk about crime. So we're going to have to see. It's kind of a similar
2: thing. I'm recording now. Yeah, we are ready to go. That was just our pre-show witty banter. Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And today I've got journalist Jillian Lauren. She spent over a year visiting serial killer Sam Little in prison. She built such a rapport with him that law enforcement was able to clear 63 of Sam Little's alleged 90 plus murders. He confessed. To that many. After he died in prison in December of 2020, he left all of his worldly possessions along with his actual brain to Jillian. It's a crazy story and one that we're going to hear straight from her mouth. She explains what led her to contact Sam in the first place, how letter writing became in person visits, and what it took to get him to reveal details about his victims and their murders. She talks about what it was like to travel to the prison and sit down face to face with Sam multiple times over multiple years. Stars made a documentary about Jillian and her experiences with Sam. It's called Confronting a Serial Killer. And then Jillian wrote a full book about it called Behold the Monster Confronting America's Most Prolific Serial Killer. It's terrifying, it's poignant, and it's available wherever you get books uh, today. So let's hear Jillian Lauren now and the horrific story of serial killer Sam Little and how she was able to get him to confess to dozens and dozens of murders right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. Well, it's interesting because we do a lot of kind of true crime stuff here on, on Talk is Jericho. And you obviously have something very cool here with, with the book that you've written uh, about Sam Little, who we've discussed before, Behold the Monster. But it's interesting to me. Uh, there's something that you wrote in your acknowledgments. I'm just going to read this this paragraph. It says, when I first sat down with the detective Mitzi Roberts, I could not have imagined the velocity of the story barreling toward me. It was the story every writer both hopes for and fears the one to which you may not be equal, the worthy adversary. No such foe is fought alone. That's really interesting to me because this was basically, I don't know, put on your plate, shall we speak, of having these exclusive interviews with this very vicious and you know violent serial killer. And I know you've written books before about other subjects and other things, but kind of tell me how, how this all started and how you became basically the exclusive interviewer of Sam Little, am I correct in saying that?
1: Well, not entirely. I mean, you know, in terms of law enforcement and he did give some interviews to 60 Minutes, but for the most part, yes, I'm the only journalist who we talked to at length. Um, and that was our deal. Right. And uh, I, I would say quite like you, Chris, I'm I'm sort of a polymath and a pain in the ass and I have mm-hmm. interest in a lot of subjects. And the detective I was interviewing when I was writing a mystery novel sort of hooked me into this story that got me where it hurts, you know? Right, right, right. And uh, when I was was talking to her about something else, and I asked her at the end of the interview, her name is Detective Mitzi Roberts. Uh, Now she's the head of the cold case special section at LAPD. Robbery Homicide Division, which, if you have watched Bosch or Dragnet, um, LAPD Robbery Homicide Division is basically the fancy. The fancy mm. detectives, and I asked her, well, "What are you the most proud of?" And she said, "I'm proud of them all, but I did catch the serial killer once, and that was pretty cool." And you know, it was like the last of the watery iced teas. And I was like, "I totally screwed up this interview. Somehow, I asked all the wrong questions." <laughs> and I said, "How did I miss this?" And she said, "I wasn't the one asking." And then she told me that, you know, in in 2014, this underreported serial killer Samuel Little that she had been the lead investigating officer of the investigation and had tracked across the country and identified with three DNA hits through a grant through the Department of Justice to run cold case evidence for DNA and they got him and he was indicted and convicted and uh, in jail for the rest of his life by the time I met him. But she told me that, you know, he was in jail for these three murders, but that the story had been underreported because the victims that Sam chose were something that in the 80s and 90s, the LAPD would often call in as a 187, a homicide, no humans involved. It's no one. It's a prostitute, it's a woman of color, it's a drug addict, it's another body found in a dumpster in the morning, and it's not gonna catch a headline. And I just thought if I could get in there, if I could just bring a little heat to this story, if I could do you know, one really splashy article, maybe I could reinvigorate some interest there's law enforcement across the country who probably have cold cases connected to this man. And so I started to research it and then I called my editor at New York Magazine and I was like, I think I have this underreported serial killer. And she's like, we're not doing just another gruesome serial killer. You've got to come at me with an angle. And I said, okay, here's this angle. He got away with it for so long because no one cared about who he was killing. And I started mm. writing him letters. And uh, and that was how I got in.
2: It's interesting because I had another journalist on, and I'm just going to find out, remember her name was, who was dealing with the toolbox killers. And mm. it was the same type of idea in that she started writing letters to them or more specifically, I think it was Roy, uh, Lawrence Bitteker, and became kind of his confidant, so to speak, where he would tell her things that he wouldn't tell anybody else. And meanwhile, she was able to use that, obviously, to you know, get get a little bit more information, that sort of thing. So when you started writing letters to him, how was he responding to you? Because there's a lot of people out there, and you know this, as weird as it may seem, that want to connect with serial killers and want to write them letters and you know, be pen pals with these killers. How was he reacting to you at first?
1: Well, Chris, I know this perhaps more than most people because at the end of the day, he left me all his possessions because I really was his confidant, the one he trusted. Right and i have boxes and boxes of fan letters and i do read some of them on my TikTok, you know and and there's a humorous element and a sad element and also just you know sort of looking into what is this why is this glamorized in some way but you know when i began to write to him he he proclaimed his innocence the whole time and i always you know, said, I'm a journalist, I really, I think your case was underreported. I think you're very, very, very important. And, you know, no one's really recognized how important you are. And I mean, and then I'm playing right to the psychopath. Now, you have to be very careful. You know, like people say, oh, it was all a lie, you know, this friendship you had with him for years, you know, it was all pretend, you were all manipulating him. I'm like, you can't get in the ring and fight with Ali. Right. Right, like this is a professional liar. Mm-hmm. So I was very careful about the lies I told him. Cause first of all, you don't have to remember it if you tell the truth. right? And also I just thought, you know, he'd shut me down immediately. He was one of the smartest people I've met, and I've met a lot of smart people.
2: So when you're saying you had to be careful with the lies that you're telling him. What kind of lies are you telling him to kind of... Well,
1: just to get in.
2: Right, right. That's what he's saying. You just know, to get and in. it
1: wasn't exactly a lie. I mean, you know, saying I really want to know more. And I'm studying violence you know, is one of the things I said, you know, I'm a student, I'm I'm studying violence, I want to understand violent and criminal behavior. I, you know, I didn't say I know you killed these women. And I want you know, how many women did you kill? I mean, if you're that direct, I mean, a, you're going to bore somebody to death and b, they'll find you an unworthy adversary. So it took months and then it took looking him in the face to get the real confession. I dealt with his, you know, saying he was innocent for months Mm -hmm. and just stepped around it. I never said, Oh yeah, totally. I really think you're innocent. That's, you know, my whole point here. Mm -hmm. You know, I just said, Oh, well, you know, that's really interesting. I want to learn more about it. I really want to learn more about the criminal justice system and how it failed you. You know, that sort of thing. It's, a, you know, not exactly a lie.
2: It's a cat and mouse game that you're playing. Yeah. And, and your and your end game was to try and get more information and figure out a little bit more about this guy, right? Is that kind of why you wanted to do that? Absolutely. You yeah. know,
1: it, and really when I went in there, there was, you know, I mean, how I walked into the story with Sam Little and how I walked out, you'd find me almost unrecognizable.
2: Hmm. In what way? How do you mean? And
1: I've talked to friends of mine about it, and they've said, like, I agree. It's it's a tiny bit uncomfortable. Like, there's a certain different kind of gravitas about you now. Hmm. Like, you don't, you know, I'm I'm a joker and a smoker, and I'm in my <laughs> joker, <laughs> 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 you know, and uh, and also a survivor of trauma, and we tend to be you know, we tend to have a lot of gallows humor, Mm -hmm. like a homicide cop, you know, and I've always been very tough. And um, you would think this story would have toughened me, but it sort of softened me. And I mean, I always add humor and I always add entertainment to my stories, because I believe, you know, I could stand on a soapbox all day long and say, you know, marginalized women are largely ignored, or dismissed, or, you know, they're less alive before they're even less dead as far as society is concerned, as far as their health care is concerned. I could stand in a soapbox and say that all day long, and you're not going to listen because it doesn't sound all that interesting. But if I can frame it in this narrative of this incredible saga of this most prolific serial killer in American history who actually demonstrated this, then maybe I can get you interested
2: now when you say the most prolific serial killer in American history and I know the answer but I want you to tell everybody listening how many victims did he claim or did you kind of piece together that he actually had and how over how many years because you mentioned how long his his killing spree went
1: so it's a 60 decade swath of crime it's 60 years 40 years of it included murder <laughs> Wow or 30 and a half. Um, but about 40 years included murder and, you know, the entire time he was being arrested every other day as a petty criminal. I mean, he was being arrested for assault, for kidnapping, for murder and was acquitted by a jury of his peers. So I always want to make the point that, you know, Samuel Little was an aberration And people always say, you know, was it terrifying? Was it so scary to sit across from him? You know, like, surely everything you said was a lie. And I'm like, no, you know, I got a little bit more frightened about humanity than I did about Sam Little, about one monster. I got a little bit more frightened about how we let him do what he did.
0: Do you want a beautiful lawn?
2: This is something too, chill, and this happens all the time. Uh, whenever we discuss true crime and whether it was Gacy or all these other guys, they pick up these guys and arrest them constantly. And I would say it's a pattern of serial killers to where they're always getting busted for something, but they always let them go. And it's maddening because, like you said, if, if you're talking about a guy. Who was killing, I'm just doing some some little research here. Seven between nineteen seventy and two thousand five. All oh, right,
1: you asked me how many. Ninety-three. Ninety-three confessions, women. Sixty-three confirmed.
2: And he's getting released, like you mentioned, getting arrested every other day. Mm-hmm. How does this how does this happen?
1: Well, it happens because in some ways, law enforcement at the time and the places in which he was operating, like he'll always say. For instance, one conversation I had with him, you know, I said, you know, I, I had my own run-ins with drugs and dangerous men, and I'm really glad I didn't run into you right? some dark night, you know? It's the only reason I'm sitting here with you right now. It's the only reason you have a friend.
2: <laughs> right.
1: And uh, And he said, oh, no. I would never kill anyone like you. I don't kill any fancy (laughs) New York journalists or governors or senators or congresswomen or college girls. He said, I stood on my part of town and you stay in your part of town. I stayed in the shadows and they didn't notice me. Hmm. You know, they just thought I was a petty thief. They arrested me every other day for stealing a steak from Walmart and then he'd go out at night. You know, he said he was theft by day and murder by night. Hmm. And yeah, you know, most of these cold cases and, and in all fairness, you know, they were back in the seventies, eighties, nineties, his, his last murder was in 2005 and really, you know, DNA fingerprinting wasn't used widely until, you know, began in 1991. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was much more gumshoe work until that time. And, and these weren't victims that were worth the gumshoe work. They weren't worth the front page. They weren't worth a byline.
2: So he was basically going and killing people who were just kind of, I mean, I don't even want to say low level, but just kind of like you mentioned, people that didn't have any status in life really kind of just
1: marginalized. Yeah.
2: Marginalized. That's a great word. Yeah.
1: Women of color, often addicts, often prostitutes, not all the time, but you know, certainly out on the wrong street on the wrong night.
2: So how do you gain access to him? You're writing letters and then, how do you finally decide? A, it's time to go see him face to face, and B, how do you, how do you make that happen?
1: Uh, well, I got my access.
2: And how, but how do you get access, though? Is is what uh, I'm asking? Well,
1: he has to give it to you. Oh, Okay. Yeah, I mean, it takes it. It's hard, actually hard to get into a men's maximum security prison in Los Angeles since Manson. And impossible to get in with a recording device.
2: But that's what I'm asking you, Julie. So how do you, what's the process to even begin to do that?
1: Well, figure it out yourself, everyone. (laughs) 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 And you'll get the exclusive. (laughs) But, you know, he gets me access.
2: Gotcha. So you really want to see him, yeah.
1: Right. But how you properly do it is you go to the person who runs publicity. Mm Mm-hmm for a prison or, you know, any, any law enforcement department, it's called a PIO and you talk to them and you, you know, ask, and say, you know, I'm a journalist, I'd like to interview this person for this reason, unless you're me, and then you don't do that. And you say, I'm his friend. (laughs) (laughs) And to which the sheriff's deputy said, friend my ass. (laughs) How you know little. I was like, oh, I'm his friend, friend my ass. But, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I walked into that prison and, and I fully expected the whole, and I, I hadn't been to a men's maximum security prison. I know enough scumbags to be able to have called them and said, what do I need to do? And they said, well, first of all, bring quarters. You know, all all you can do is bring a clear plastic bag, right? And I need my prescription for my glasses. Mm. And, you know, you can wear like one, pair of earrings, one wedding ring, like run your hands under your, uh, you know, turn around, run your hands under your waistband, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can have this clear plastic bag full of quarters, which are for the vending machines. Hmm. If your visitor doesn't come with quarters for the vending machines, you're not cool. And I was like vending machines. I was fully expecting that whole like phone and the 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 window, you know, the hand thing, (laughs) the whole thing. (laughs) That's great. And I walked into a room, and it was the family visiting room. It was like all these families around little plastic tables. There was a little area in the corner for kids with Legos. There's like a photo booth. There's vending machines all around and microwaves. Only visitors can use the microwaves to heat up the burritos. And I'm watching, you know, these convicts hold their babies. And I'm like, this is where I'm meeting the serial killer. mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I was watching, there's a red line and the convex line up behind the red line there, you know, and then they go back in or they come back out and they come for their visiting session. So I'm watching that line, but Sam's in a wheelchair. So he comes in through a different door and he rolls up behind me.
2: Creepy. <laughs>
1: and was like, ooh, you're my angel. And I was just like ah! <laughs> <laughs> wow not on the outside but on the inside <laughs>
2: right now now this is ah, real
1: i know and then i was like oh well hello sam and you know my mother is very proper and um she always taught me you know how to sit it's very, um, emily post you know you cross your you cross your ankles you hold your knees together as if you can hold an aspirin between them oh. and you <laughs> fold your hands in your lap and I just sat there with that. And I was always like a punk rocker. I was like, no, man. Like, <laughs> how come men can take up so much space? And no, I'm not allowed to. And I was just like, if you just sit there and hold this aspirin between your knees as hard as you can, then your face is not going to show. Mm-hmm. that you're scared. Hmm. And and it flowed from there. And it was um, two days and six hours in before I finally started getting his confessions.
2: So back up a bit. So what's it like? You said he's in a wheelchair. How old is he at this point in time? 78. Late 70s, let's say, right? Yeah. So when you turn around and you've been writing letters and stuff, and now you turn around, you're face-to-face with a man who has killed 93 women.
1: I didn't know that at the time at all, and neither did anyone. Wow. All I know is three.
2: So, okay, okay, let's back that up. Then you're face-to-face with a man who killed three women.
1: Right, but I'm sure he killed more, and my idea is to try to get him to start admitting that he did.
0: Do you want a beautiful lawn? What's the
2: vibe of this guy, though? Like when you come face to face the killer like that, how is it for you?
1: It's to explain them. And like, you first look at him, it, you're sort of calculating, mm-hmm. and there's an absence that's immediately palpable. I mean, I think people, and I've heard detectives like to say, like, it's like you're staring into the eyes of evil. And you know, I, I didn't think that at all, mm-hmm. but there was something missing. And I'm, I'm a good conversationalist and people like to talk to me. And um, and so, you know, I just started to talk to him like he's a person because he is. Mm-hmm. We like our monsters monsters. But the fact is that, you know, the, what's monstrous about us is just the very edges of what's human. Mm-hmm he's still human so i just you know started talking about my kids and my meatloaf and my work and why (laughs) i was there and what i wanted and you know and then mostly of course he wanted to talk about himself and and then it started to roll from there we built a rapport and um when he started confessing to me is when i started talking to the police. I started talking to local jurisdictions and I was talking to the FBI and the Department of Justice who it turned out I just happened to collide with as they were starting to open up this case again. So I was in the middle of a federal investigation and I was a reporter and that is a classically tense relationship. (laughs) How do you mean well, uh, you know, cops and cops and reporters. You know, we <laughs> need each other, right? And also, like, they're trying to protect their information. We're trying to get at their information. Mm-hmm. You know, they would like us to report exactly what they want people to think, and we want to find out. You know, and we want to dig into the dirty corners. And there is a there's a place for both of that. And it was a real lesson for me because I hadn't quite, other than with my fictional projects, I hadn't, you know, dealt with law enforcement, you know, in in a very serious journalistic way. And uh, it's, a, it's a little scarier. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, just going back to kind of what you're saying, because I've been thinking of a lot of different things that you've been talking about. So you mentioned it was two days and six hours before you started getting him to confess. Now, do you think that he wants to confess to you from the start? Or did you have to kind of like convince him to do so? Because obviously- I convinced him.
1: I mean, I think people had approached him before and he'd said no. You know, I think he cherry picked me. I think he, you know, I was honest in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. I- Sam is really, was really smart in such a twisty, turny way. For instance, I just figured this out. There are still things, you know, five years later, and he's been dead since 2020. There are still things I'm figuring out. I realized that, you know, he called me his angel, his angel, his angel in uh, all of his letters. You know, you're my angel. And he would say, you know, I love Jillian, my angel, and Jillian loves her books.
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: So that was the, that was the deal, right? And then, you know, but he spelled it angle, A-N-G-L-E. Oh, gotcha. He would always spell it angle. Right, which is a word we use as reporters all the time. I'm looking for an angle, right? I'm looking for an angle in. I'm I'm I always have an angle. He would always say, you know, Jillian's my angle. And when I received all of his possessions, boxes and boxes of them, it was quite a thing. And I opened them. I noticed that there were four books in his cell. I got everything that was in his cell. And the books were the Bible, a photo book of a whole lot of asses, (laughs) and a very wonderful memoir called Down These Mean Streets by Peary Thomas, and a dictionary. Hmm. he had a dictionary
2: <laughs> a dictionary a bible and a book of asses that pretty much uh-huh. those are the four he major had a books dictionary
1: groups. and he would say things like oh i think you are full of deceit 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 like spell it three different ways and i'm like you have four books in your room and one of them is a dictionary <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm pretty sure you could look up angel.
2: Right. And spell it right. Yeah. Good call. Um, you
1: know, so I'm an angle and he wasn't wrong.
2: Well, that's it, it's very apropos, isn't it? Like angle kind of really fits exactly what you, you, you had an angle on him that you wanted to get him to do as well.
1: Right. A hundred percent. I mean, and, and I was clear with him about that. Like I, I wasn't like, I'm in here cause I'm your girlfriend. I'm in here cause I think you're so swell. I was like i'm in here because i'm writing a book and i'd like them to pay me for it Mm -hmm. and um you know as we were getting sort of to what i thought was the end of his life and he got more addled and covid was sort of you know the tide of it was coming and that was when i stopped seeing him you know when the prison when the visiting hour shut down but um you know i said to him like what is it you want the world to know about you and he says like i want the world to know good things about me i want them to know that i that i love jillian jillian is my angle i want them to know good things that i love that i care about women and i was like you know what no one's gonna pay me for (laughs) a book about how great you are Mm-hmm. You know, so why don't you give me something better? Like why don't you give me something good? You know, like if if you could be anything, what would you be in the world? And he said, I'd be a lawyer. I was like, no one likes being a lawyer. Okay, so why do you want to be a lawyer? He said, I could help people with these awful cases. And I was like, what do you think you deserve for what you did? You want to help people with their awful cases? like? What do you think you deserve? Mm Because we live in a society where you don't just get to go around killing people for fun. We have rules. And it was like he rarely had no answer. Hmm. But there just wasn't a world in which it's just he was entitled to this because he wanted it, because God made him that way, because he wanted it and he took it. He said, I don't know how sex and death got all twisted up in me, but God made me this way and God forgave me. Hmm. And I could have crawled across the table at that moment and strangled him myself, frankly.
2: Two days, six hours before he confesses to the first or whatever, whatever the story you're going to tell, what was the breakthrough that happened on your end to finally get him to go down that road?
1: Well, I mean, there were a couple times we had, conversations like the last one I mentioned, you know, where I was just like, enough mm. already. They're not right. paying me to tell you, you know, they're not paying me to tell the story about how great you are. But he said, I want a TV.
2: I want a TV. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Are you going to buy me a TV? And I said, I don't know, am I? He said, I want things. And I was like, I want things too. And we'd already had the conversation about what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I didn't say I want a book about the women you killed, right? Like, I never said that. I said, you know, I'm writing a book about violence. I'm writing a book about violent crime, I'm writing about, you know, like mm-hmm. if you have nothing to offer me about that, you know, and he just said, okay, you got me you got me little miss. And he drummed his like long, he had these long yellow fingernails and it was a sort of a weird affectation. And he drummed them on the table and he just said, what do you want to know? Do you want to know about the first one? And and that first day it was 23 confessions. And you know, I didn't get all of the 93 confessions. I mean, I got, you know, certain ones I did a deeper dive into. It wasn't much of this was the effort of law enforcement across the country. Mm-hmm. I think there's sort of a a fun romantic idea that I went in there and got every confession from him. But really what I got was details that other people didn't get. Um, and had a relationship with him where he would he would just tell me stuff he wouldn't tell other people. And then I was able to communicate with law enforcement. And, and in a handful of cases, those were the details that connected the case to Little. Do you
0: want a beautiful lawn?
2: It's really interesting because I had on, we talked about Blackbird and Larry Hall and mm-hmm. how the, you know, the, the, the guy went in there and kind of pretended to be his friend, James Keene, and, and got these confessions from Larry Hall. And yours is a little bit more, I love this, especially with, with your past and the other books that you've written. Like you knew exactly how to get this from him as soon as he said, I wanted a TV. It's like, okay, now he wants something from me. Now I can really get in there and get what I want.
1: I've realized that, I mean, and not just because of my history, you know, my history as a survivor.
2: Exactly. You know,
1: like, like I, I was watching a movie the other night and there was a line, like, if you're very good at reading people, it's because as a child, you had to stay way ahead in front, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that that's very true of me. You know, I was, you know, I always had to stay in, in front of, you know, I, I don't feel like I was necessarily surrounded by people who had my best interests at heart.
2: I agree with you. That's, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, and, you know, and, and that and that gives you the mentality of a survivor. And that is what allowed me to sort of face him and also not, and realize that when you're talking to a psychopath, when you're talking to someone, with antisocial personality disorder, which is, you know, the clinical designation, I mean, a psycho, that's not a thing. Mm. It's It's not a, it's not a psychiatric thing, but we sort of understand it as a lack of remorse you know, or a lack of humanity, a lack of like compassion. And that I am really able to interact with that, Mm -hmm. you know, and not have it like, oh my God, no, it's unbelievable. It's totally freaky. How can it be that this person can't care about this? I'm like, "I I don't really care how. It can be. I mean, I do care. I look into the neuroscience of it. I look into the genetics of it. But I'm, um, you know, in terms of my job, I just need to know how it operates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the why of why your brain is different than my brain. You know, why different parts of your brain light up for different things. You know, when you have psychopathic personality traits or narcissistic personality traits, you know, and you have a lack of activity in your amygdala and the lack of activity in your frontal lobe, which has which is impulse control and executive function, you know, and mine hop all day. And you know, cause me to take a <laughs> <laughs> I'm I take a lot of beta blockers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> when you were talking with him, you mentioned before to get in with any type of recording equipment is very hard. Are you just listening to memory or do you have a pen and paper? Are you having some kind of tape recorder?
1: It is impossible to get into a men's maximum security prison in Los Angeles with a recording device. Gotcha. So most of my interviews outside of the prison with permission, because California, you need permission to record, were recorded, or I took notes. However, Mm -hmm. um, not in the prison. So I have a sort of weird, I have a weird little memory tick. And I don't know, it's because my father was quite a gambler. Uh, (laughs) And I really don't ever recommend you play poker with my 11 year old for money. I tell people that and they (laughs) don't believe me, but I don't recommend it. And, um, you know, it, there's a very simple thing. It's called a memory palace. And if you're interested in it, there's a beautiful book called Moonwalking with Einstein by Jonathan Foyer that explains it. But basically, you know, we remember things that are funny and filthy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that is the that's what our brain sees on. So and also we remember things spatially. So if you say usually people start with their childhood house take your childhood house, right? And if you want to sit down, have somebody start with a 15 minute conversation, right? And every single thing they tell you place it somewhere. But you have to put an image on it. And it's got to be really funny and filthy. Like, Mm. The other day I was talking to a friend, and this is, I think, a good example because three days later I remember it, right? I was like, okay, we're trying to remember, we're doing some memory tricks, and I was like, this is, this thing is on page sixty nine of this book. I was like, how are we gonna remain? Oh no, page sixty eight of this book. I was like, how are we gonna remember that? Okay, it's like if it was a sixty nine, but it was lousy,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it was a sixty eight. One less, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and
1: three days, I remember it's page sixty-eight. So that's how I do it.
2: Sure, right? You
1: that know, makes sense, and so, that's, yeah. that's how I that's how I did the confessions. That's how I did the live interviews. Now, then, I talked to him on the phone, and all of that was recorded.
2: So, what, what when you're hearing like you mentioned twenty-three on the first day? Is this kind of sensory overload to be like, are you kidding me? Like another one, another one, another one, and is he giving you really? deep details about what he's doing to these to these women
1: and it, and it changed throughout time you know i mean it was it was one of the real i think unusual and um rare but the real gifts of this particular relationship right as a journalist is most people don't have a chance to talk to people over a course of years right you go in you get 1 hour 2 hours you get you know a cursory understanding and then you you pull things from public records you pull things from uh, you know other people in the story but like i had a chance to go really deep with him um and i don't think many people get to do that no, and certainly no. not with somebody of, of, of with that sort of aberrant mind like that like sort of deep criminology and um it, you know, it was fascinating and and, and I think it, it just it gave me like a multi layer understanding of what was going on in his mind at the time. What
2: were some of the details that he told you about some of these things? was there, was there some stuff that just really kind of like made you sick or disgusted or angry or all of the above?
1: You know, I didn't have time mm. or space or like one extra millimeter of room for sentimentality when I was actually speaking with him. And particularly when I, I was using a memory palace, because that takes, right. it takes practice and concentration. It's not like I can just like tell you how to do that and then you can do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You gotta work on it for a while, you know? And and if you do it every day for a month, you can memorize a pack of cards. Sure. Just takes practice. Mm-hmm. But uh I've always been so on point in interviews. And this is the first time I've ever talked about anything that I feel thrown sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I And rightfully so by yeah, the way. Like, you, right you know, I so. always have my like talking points and and then I find myself unable to like dissociate in the way that I was when I was talking to him, Mm -hmm. you know, because now he's gone, the book is out, like somehow I'm allowed to feel it. Sure. Like to feel the weight of what I held, to to feel the like the responsibility of what I did. But in that moment, you know, I, I just kept that famous like Toni Morrison quote in my head. Like there is no room for self. There is no, I'm going to mess this up right now, but <laughs> there's no room for self pity, despair, or sentimentality. You know, we do language and that is how cultures heal. And I was just like, there's no room for sentimentality. There's no room for despair. Like you would just sit here and you will focus and you will get this story, you know? And then the box comes with the books in it. And I feel like, do I get a minute now? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. do I get a minute for despair? Like, I didn't, I wasn't there horrified. I mean, like I said, there was like that one moment I wanted to crawl over the table and strangle him, you know, but I didn't allow it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't allow him to scare me. And I wouldn't allow him to creep me out. And I was just like, it's stupid, you're not spooky. You're not spooky. You're just cruel. You're just a vicious toddler who never considered any other human other than yourself. And I don't find that scary. Mm. I find that sad and hopeless. And I have to, like fight against that and figure out a narrative that tells a different story. And that's why I went and started focusing on the victims.
2: Focusing on the victims in what way?
1: Victims and their families and their stories and diving into their lives, you know, because their lives ended, you know, under the eyes of this vicious man. Um, And that's, you know, partially why I wrote certain chapters from the victim's perspective because i yeah. just thought you know sam little you, know, you don't get to be the last person to have heard what she said like now i did right
2: right right right, right. you yeah. just
1: told me so now i did so now i, I you know i'm i'm the one who has to it, with the best of my ability try to give Denise, to give Marianne, to give Mary a a voice of some kind, even if it's wrong, even if it's my best shot, I do know what they said.
2: Well, and and once again, that's a great responsibility for you and a heavy responsibility. But to me, you did do a great thing because there's a lot of fathers and daughters or fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters that had no idea what happened to their respective loved one. And at least now you're able to give them some clarity and some closure.
1: Yeah. So there's a piece that that's justice, you know? I mean, I always yeah. think closure is a little bit of word for other people to use. Like uh-huh. There's never really any closure when there is an insensible crime, right? Because closure would, I don't know, imply some sort of understanding. Yeah. And how do you understand? But. I do know that, that the families that I'm in touch with do have a sense of justice, you know, and, and more of a sense of peace. You know, I'm, I'm close with some of them. Sometimes I think they help mm-hmm. me more than I help them. Right. <laughs> when I'm like, I don't think I can do this anymore. They're just like, no, Jillian, keep going, keep going. Mm. And yeah, you know, it's, it's really given me meaning. And I think, I don't know, I I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, happiness, like, oh, how do you be happy? Five ways to be happy. Seven ways you can be successful. Ten ways to reach happiness. And, you know, one way is, you know, all your clothes are folded in exactly the (laughs) right way. And like, I, I just don't buy it. I don't buy if I really figure out how finally, finally to keep my clothes folded, you know, that that's going to bring me
2: happiness.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe you all, but what I do think is that I can invite people, you know, into like a search for meaning and a search for justice. And that I can do that with my work and I do it with being entertaining and also, you know, precise and good and I think explaining the science and hopefully you know just engaging people in this idea that you know the casual dismissal of violence against women in this culture is unacceptable.
0: Do you want a beautiful lawn?
2: Well it's and I like the fact that you actually included all of the victims in your book and it, either a picture or an artist's sketch as close as you could to get. Sam's you Oh, those are Sam's sketches. Yes. Wow. Okay, wow. That makes it even even more heavy, right? But 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 I do like the fact that you at least wanted to give them a name the face
1: I want to restore their names their dignity their voices you know in whatever I can in whatever way I can and at least like be a champion for you know the voices in law enforcement and in communities that are saying you know well in in the words of the fictional Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly who is a mentor of mine you know everybody right. counts or nobody counts
2: as we start to wind down here though, when we, we, you're talking about having a relationship with the, the law, are they now listening to you? Because, you know, how, how do they decide, if, not that you're making it up, but how do they decide it's officially allowed to be used as a confession? Is he now going uh, to the not. cops after you talk to him?
1: So everyone's like, oh, you solved a murder. I'm like, I solve no murders. I'm not a detective. Yeah, yeah. You know, what what I do is I'm able to give the give law enforcement the information I have, and then they incorporate it into their investigation. And and it's up to them to decide, you know, does this fit? Does it not fit? You know, and there were certain, certain investigations that I really put my back into on my own, particularly the Alice investigation at the end of the book that I pretty much solved from bottom to top, which... I mean, I didn't, like I said, I didn't solve. I came up with a very convincing hypothesis and the Long Beach Police Department solved it for me, but I was right. And it was, uh, and I'm very close to the Alice's family and it was, you know, certainly one of the most profound experiences of my life when I got that phone call, you know, that case is still open and... You know, we've identified mm-hmm. that victim, and the name is Alice Denise Duval, and it fits all your, it fits all your specifications. And I was just like, oh, you really, you could knock me over with a feather. Mm-hmm. I just thought Sigh. I did something. Mm-hmm. Well, you did something. Major. I did a thing, like <laughs> I did a real thing, you know. Sometimes art can feel amorphous, but murder doesn't.
2: Great point. Great quote. Were the sketches that you mentioned earlier that that um, Sam sent you, uh, were, were, were they – did he send – sorry, did the sketches get sent to you? Were those something that, that you had? So you were the first one that had ever seen these.
1: No. Uh, I mean, he had them in his cell. He'd been – drawing he told me there's only two things i was ever good at drawing and fighting you know sam was a boxer
0: mm-hmm. sam, was
1: mm-hmm. a eight, sam was a middle sam was a middleweight boxer in prison Psh, a gray robinson was his hero. We I mean, it was one of the ways that I sort of why I wanted to talk about fighting a little bit. You know, it was really one of the ways I established a rapport with him because you know, I don't know, I walk in, maybe you don't expect somebody, you know, who spent my my dad bet on the fights.
0: Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. You
1: know, I mean, pound for pound, I, I know more about proper boxing. But you know, my husband's an MMA fighter, amateur, but Mm. Excellent. He's killing those 18-year-olds. You should see him. He works really hard.
2: That's great.
1: He's in the jujitsu now. He's like, mm. yeah. And and it's, it's fantastic. I mean, our whole family was going to the gym and boxing together mm. um, on Saturdays for a while. And it was really cool. I even sparred with my husband once. Yeah. <laughs> but but really i got you know i got in sideways with him with
2: the boxing so that kind of was another connection that you had with him then
1: yeah i was like pound for pound who you think's the best
2: Mm -hmm. what did he say
1: he said sugar ray robinson Uh i said i said sugar ray leonard Uh ah nice Nice, nice, nice. I know. I mean, you know, it's tough. It's like everyone loves a heavyweight fight, but watch that man dance.
2: <laughs> Did Sam get convicted of all of these uh, additional murders?
1: Um, so there have been, like I said, 63 cleared, right? So that doesn't mean that that every single one was tried. So they're like a guilty verdict, but something can be called exception cleared. Um, so it just means there had to have a whole trial. He had to plead. Like, there are certain specifications that can say, you know, we can clear this case without actually having to spend taxpayer resources on an entire trial. I think there are about eight to 10 actual trials and guilty verdicts, 63 exceptional clearances.
2: So when when you were putting together the book, now you have all this information. I mean, and and the good thing about writing a book, I've written many books myself. We're fellow New York Times bestselling authors. Congratulations I know, to us. I saw
1: that. I can't wait to dig in.
2: Oh, but but when you put something onto paper, it really is that's some good uh, closure. At least it was for me. and A lot of the stuff that I wrote about, and knowing that it's kind of in this volume of of words, I can kind of forget about it. And if I ever want to go back, it's you know, it's it's right here. Do you feel the same way? Are you, do you are you at a little bit more, I don't know if peace is the word, but can you deal with all this horrific information that you called out of this guy now that it's on the page?
1: You know, it's. Uh, I feel like, you know, it's, it's like the tides. Like I said, you know, there was so long that I was working on it that I couldn't allow mm-hmm. the emotions. One of the things, there's a documentary called Confronting a Serial Killer that Joe Berlinger also made about me when right. I was writing the book one of the things that was actually my idea i insisted because they had all the fancy video equipment but like they couldn't follow me every single day of my life and every single day of my life was consumed by this case so right. i like glued a gopro in my office and every single time i walked in i turned it on and i don't care if i was like out of bed if i was like pulling my pants up because i just had <laughs> to pee if i was like crying in a bikini with my hand (laughs) looking (laughs) fat with my hair all up, you know, I was just like, because this is the real thing. This is the real thing of dealing with this every single day. And so, you know, I, I intend to, you know, continue to like show the real thing somehow, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this is kind of my real hair. (laughs) But the real thing is the word and it's on the page and, you know, the research was extensive and it did, you know, and it was ruinous in some way. It was hurtful to my family. Um, It was hurtful to my marriage and, you know, we've all sort of managed to come back around with it and like, sort of allow the feelings of what came up. You know, now we're starting to talk about it, like what it was like for my 15 year old to be around, you know, having to hear a serial killer on the phone. So I would say like, yeah, you know, the fact just writing a book, like, I don't know that it's healing, but it gives me control over the narrative. Mm Like you can tell that you can tell the story in this podcast. You can edit this any way you want to make me sound any way you want, but but the words are on the page, and that's my story, and I get to have it. And to me, I, I think that's sort of when people look at my life and they say, like, "How did this many crazy things happen to you?" <laughs> <laughs> Which I also sort of related to you about That's you. Truth.
2: That's true. And You're like, right.
1: You just go like, what? And then <laughs> what? And then you were like a slave wearer. And then you married a rock star. <laughs> right. And then you met a serial killer and he confessed to you. And I'm just like, yeah. I mean, like anything is just your life when it's mm-hmm. life, It's an interesting
2: it's, life for sure. It's an
1: interesting life, but you put it down on the page and it's yours and you framed it
2: is there any of the victims that you felt really kind of connected to with the story or is there one that stands out for you at all?
1: Oh, Alice, of course, you know, and that is, and that's when like, when I say like, there's no closure, closures for other people. Well, like I do feel closure with that because I feel like, you know, her, her family like got together, came out had a ceremony for her. It was, you know, like there was a sense of closure with that. And then there's Marianne. Who's just always lived in my heart, uh, transgender, um, 18-year-old victim of Sam's, 1974 in Miami and so unlikely ever to be solved. Um, I mean, particularly because likely misgendered, it was illegal to be transgendered. So what friend's going to go for when she disappears, just where he left the body. It's so unlikely that it'll ever be found, and his story about her was so detailed and and I do write it in the book, and um, you know, it was the chapter that really that really had my head on the table for mm-hmm. a few weeks. And I, I don't know. I always sort of uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a woman of logic and science, but every once in a while, I, I look out my window here, and you know, I see the birds and. Sometimes I just think of them. You know, I, I like ask them. I'm like, Guadalupe.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Marianne, what do you think? <laughs>
2: well, Jillian, this, this is a really interesting book that you wrote. And you actually did some really good work here in, in, in having this guy confess to all of these horrific crimes but like you said bringing some sort of peace we hope to their families and the book is amazing and you're awesome too you've got lots of cool stuff going on and i'm sure we can talk again when your next project is ready and then we got to talk about wrestling too
1: and we have to talk about wrestling too promise
2: i promise pinky swear
1: okay pinky <laughs> swear. sometime thank
2: you so much Jillian. great stuff great job and great book
1: thank you so much chris and i i'm a big fan of your work
2: thank you